Well, welcome to, uh, to Rio Vista Community Church. My name is Matt, and I am, uh, I'm one of the pastors here, our senior pastor, Tom. Uh, he goes away with his family every time of this year for a few weeks and uh, refills the tank. And he always leaves the rest of us with these special passages, these blessed, glorious passages. So let me just share with you the one he left me today. You don't need to keep up with this, Terry. I'm just going to read it. <clears throat> Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed... Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, Do uh, do not go out or follow them, for the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by, his, by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you that in, the night, in that night there will be two in bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, and one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Thanks for nothing, Tom. Um, What a beautiful, hopeful, very clear passage that is. This is an eschatological passage. Eschatology, the study of the end times. This is an apocalyptic passage. It uses apocalyptic language that's familiar in Scripture and that the the audience of his day would have known and understood very well. It's scary. It's very scary. And the study of eschatology is probably one of the deepest, if not the deepest, curiosity in modern times. The study of the end times and how things are going to end. And There's movies about it and some of them are about the Christian understanding of it and some of them are about the Mayan understanding of it and all these kinds of things. But everybody wants to know. They want the road map. They want the secret puzzle to understand uh, how everything ends. They want the insider information. And that's that's very understandable. But here's the the deal. There has been so much speculation, so much craziness, so many crazy theories and ideas about the end times that um, some people have just swung the other way. And I think that includes our our own denomination as a church. I think we've swung the other way and we don't ever talk about the end times. We don't ever talk about eschatology at all. And here's the problem with that. The problem is that we live in the middle, in the midst of an epic, redemptive story and we are the players we are the characters we are the people in the story we're the one about whom the story is in some sense or at least part of it we're the ones who are living out and acting out the story 
And the end of the story is very important to those living out the story. And if you don't know about how things will end, if you don't contemplate what God is doing with his story and what will happen at its culmination, guess what? You totally mess up how you're living in the present. So the truth is, I actually love this passage. It's a wonderful passage. Um, Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 37, if you have your Bible and you want to turn there. The verses will also be up on the screen. Uh, If you ever come to church and you forget your Bible and you like having one in your hand, there are always extras in the parlor back there. We also have study Bibles that we recommend that are great tools for doing your personal worship. And I hope you did that this week. I hope that you got into that rhythm of personal worship with us this week and you got into this passage early because when your pastors get up here to preach, before we enter this text as preachers, we enter it as Christians We enter it as fellow members of this church with you. And really, what this ought to be on Sunday is the culmination of all of our preparations for the sermon that God would preach to us with one person who comes up and represents. So, I hope that's what this has been to you this week. But here is what this week is about. This week is about a story told again and again and again from ancient times to this day and until the end of time. And here's the story. And you'll recognize it because it, finds, uh, it, is, it is the root of every great story ever told. It's the divine comedy. Creation. Peace and freedom. Rebellion. Fall. War and slavery. A sliver of hope held out in a faithful remnant. And a deliverer comes. And peace and freedom are restored. That's what this passage is about. But it is one of many. It is one of many redemption stories told in all of Scripture. Echoes of this can be heard in Noah and the ark. Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham's faithful plea. Abraham and Isaac when he held the the knife over his son to sacrifice him and God provided a ram in the thicket, a way of deliverance. The Israelite slaves oppressed in Egypt and the blood of the lamb that they painted over their doorways as a sign of their faithfulness and their their enduring love for their God. The door through which they would walk to where? to freedom. And maybe one of my favorite redemption stories in all of Scripture, Rahab the prostitute, not even a Jew, not even an Israelite, lived in the city of Jericho. But she somehow, by the grace of God, had faith in Him and in His redemptive story. And she held out a scarlet thread. Do you hear that? A scarlet, a red cord out her window, and all, and she and all her household were spared. A remnant, faithful, held out. Restored and redeemed as the city collapsed around them and set out for what? For freedom. Rahab, in the line of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, she would be. His great, 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 however many greats, grandmother, Rahab the prostitute. The story 
of freedom and peace, rebellion, fall, war and slavery, faithful remnant, deliverer, peace and freedom restored. So here's the deal for you and me. What does this matter? Whenever you read an apocalyptic eschatological story in Scripture, you need to know that it, it related and applied to the people who were hearing it, the people who would then read it, and to you. It is part of your eschatological end time story. It is part of the redemptive story in you. Because here's the thing. At all times and in all places in history, you and I, And all of the people who've ever lived have found ourselves somewhere in this story. It can be very personal. It can literally be a story of redemption that is between you and God alone. And it might be stuck in slavery and death. It could be a story of redemption between you and your family and your loved ones or between someone you love and God. It can be a story of redemption an epic struggle in our community or in our culture, in our nation. It can be a global struggle that involves beheadings, persecutions. Regardless of the scope of the story, no matter how grim or prosperous things might be, you are somewhere in it right now and there is still only one thing That will preserve you. It was true for Abraham. It was true for Noah. It was true for Rahab. It was true for Lot. It was true for everyone. It was true for you. Your Savior King. The author of this redemptive story. The one who knows how it ends. The one who steps in to the story. As the deliverer in all time. Jesus was in Sodom. Jesus was with Abraham and Isaac. Jesus the Deliverer was on the ark. Jesus the Deliverer has been in every story of redemption ever told. True redemption. It is His work and spirit that brings true redemption. And every one of us is in the middle of that story somewhere. And what we're going to talk about today as we come to understand this story better is how to live well within it. With watchful eyes. On the future, when all things will be made right, tears wiped away, oppression ended, captives set free. Where are we in the story? So with that in mind, open your Bible to Luke chapter 17, starting at verse 20. He says this, and by the way, I just want to warn you. I'm going to spend a lot of time on a couple verses. I don't want you to think I'm going to spend that much time on every verse or you're going to think we're going to be here all day. And we're only going to be here like 2.30, so it'll be fine. (laughs) Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he, Jesus, answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Now put your name in there. And he answered you. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. What were they looking for? What were they hoping to observe? Well, here's the deal. If you know anything about biblical history, you know that they were looking for um, a warrior king who would come and reestablish Jerusalem as the capital city of the world and Israel as its superpower, the way it had been at one time. 
So they're looking for signs and government and leadership and socioeconomic upheaval and even natural phenomena. Phenomena, Because remember, these religious leaders, even though they were Jewish, were affected, in some senses infected, by the Greek Greco-Roman culture. So they weren't just looking for um, signs that maybe their prophets had spoken of. They were looking for signs among the gods. They were looking for stars to align a certain way or earthquakes to happen or other things that were attached to ancient Greek and Roman mythology. So if they had an aggressive approach, they thought that this would be achieved through the political cunning and military dominance of this warrior king. Smoothest tongue, sharpest sword, with a little bit of divine wind at his back. That's what they were looking for. You know anybody looking for that? You ever watch the news? Pick your station? Read certain books? Listen to certain preachers? Some people are looking for that. Or maybe they take a passive approach. Looks like this. Hide and wait until God comes and gives it to them and then gives it to me. Of course, that was only back then. That doesn't happen today. I never do that myself. Whether they chose an aggressive approach or a passive approach, they both assumed something about blessing. They assumed what you and I assume, and that is that blessing was defined by power, influence, and material prosperity. So it goes like this. And this is the way I'm, think about it, and I'll tell you what I mean. Think about the last several times you've used the word blessing. Ah, we're really blessed. We've been blessed. What did you mean? Well, I'll tell you what, oftentimes when I hear that word or when I use that word, what I mean, what I mean is I got a bonus. There's money in the bank. Our car, we got our car fixed, Um, we've got a beautiful home, we've had a wonderful vacation, my family is healthy, the right person is in the White House, etc. and so forth. My stocks are up, my business is doing well, I've been blessed. So those are all blessings, but lest you hear me say that those are not blessings and they're all evil and you should all go and take vows of poverty and move into the desert. Those are all blessings. But let me ask you a question if those are the only the way the blessing works, okay? There's something that makes those into blessings. The truth is they're not blessings, they're neutral. They are nothing unless they are for a certain purpose. It is that purpose that turns them into a blessing. So because here's why, let me ask you this. Was Jesus not blessed? Jesus the suffering servant, Jesus the man who had nowhere to lay his head? Jesus who suffered and died, Jesus who was oppressed and persecuted for crimes he didn't commit and hung on a cross between two thieves on the town garbage heap, was he not blessed? Were none of the apostles blessed? Every one of whom, except for Judas, the betrayer, died a horrible martyr's death or suffered exile, were, were none of them blessed? Was the Apostle Paul, whose life ended in beheading, who had lost everything in this material world, was he not blessed? They were all blessed. They were all blessed beyond our wildest dreams and imaginations. In the deepest sense, they were blessed down in the core, the way we can only hope we might one day be blessed. Because you see, blessing is a spiritual thing. Things become blessings when you understand that as they come into your hand, they are meant to bless. 
My wealth becomes blessing when it becomes a blessing. My health becomes blessing when it becomes a blessing. That means my sickness, my disease, my suffering, my poverty, my persecution can be what? A blessing if it becomes a blessing. So Jesus says that kingdom you're looking for, you're looking in the wrong place. So even though Jesus makes it plain that they're not going to find the kingdom where they're looking, why is it that that we are all so preoccupied with the need to know about the end times? They were, and we still are, right? And this is, I'm not making this up, and maybe you know, um, anybody recognize the name Edgar Wisenant? Anyone? Anyone? You are a total nerd if you recognize that name. He was a retired NASA scientist. He was a Christian, very devout Christian, really was. He wrote a book called 88 Reasons Jesus Will Return in 1988. You can look it up. It's still on Amazon. I'm not making this up. In 1989, he revised it. 90 Reasons He'll Return in 1990. He revised it again in 92, 94, got a little discouraged, took some time off, tried again in 97, never came, never, never worked. At one time when he had written that first book, 88 Reasons in 88, he's going to come back. He made this quote, this claim. He said, I am so confident about this. If I am wrong, the Bible is wrong. He re- fortunately recanted of that later after his 97 prediction. He died in 2001, and now he's with Jesus, and now he knows, he really knows what it's going to happen, which is cool, good for him. But, you know, we made a whole, there's been a whole industry that's built around this, this preoccupation with the coming of Jesus, or however the ends are, is going to come. But here's the deal, I'm just going to tell you now, I have the answer today, you ready? In this room, never before in recorded history, what you're going to hear right now, um, are you going to hear, you should write this down because I'm going to tell you the deal with his coming. You won't know when he's coming. You won't know. You will not know when he comes. It's not because it's too complicated. Here's the deal. You're not, it's not buried somewhere deep in the prophetic books of scripture and we just need the right TV evangelist to find it. There's not some secret mathematical formula calculated to discover exactly the time and the hour, the day and the hour. You won't, you won't discern it by sitting on your yoga mat and meditating and saying, oh Lord, please show me when he will return. Let me tell you what, that is the most dangerous kind of eschatology. When you just go with your gut. You won't count all the letters in Revelation from the first letter to the middle and the last letter to the middle and when you get to the middle you go, this is the verse. And I say all those things as if they're preposterous and none of us would do them, but there's an entire industry built around that kind of pursuit of the end times. Here's the problem with it. The problem with it is that Jesus says you won't know. By design. He says you won't know, you can't know. In Matthew 24, he says this. Concerning that day or the hour, no one knows. But then he goes a step farther. Not even the angels of heaven know. So the guys that are hanging out with God every day, not even they know. But then he goes one step further. He says, not even I know. Not even I, Jesus, know, but only the Father. 
In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, now you've got to remember, Acts was written after Jesus had taught them all about the kingdom, and he said it's a spiritual kingdom, it's not a physical kingdom, and uh, he said, don't go looking for it because you're not going to find it. He said all of that, and then he died, he said he was going to raise from the dead, and he did. So after he dies, and he's raised from the dead, and he comes out of the tomb, this is what the disciples ask. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So why is it that all of us think now is the time? Why is it that all of us think, everybody in human history, I bet you could go back every 50 years and every generation would think that it's time was the time when the the end times were coming. It's imminent. It's about to happen. I'll tell you why. Because it is time. Because the kingdom of God is right now. You're living in an eschatological age. You're living in an end times age and you have been since Jesus was here. But it's an age that recycles a story of redemption over and over and over as a type, as a habit, as a way of showing you the way God's kingdom works and is eventually moving toward a culmination. Then you won't know when it comes. And there's a reason for that. Everybody thinks that now is the time because there are so much evidence of these apocalyptic eschatological things going on all the time. Because Jesus was speaking of a story that plays out again and again and that would eventually usher in the end of time. Apocalyptic literature like this, it doesn't just speak of one event. Jesus speaks to them in their present, and by the way, he is speaking of an event which we'll talk about, but he also speaks to you and me right now, about right now, and about the age to come. So the next verse. Nor will they say, Jesus says, look here, look here it is, or there, For behold, the kingdom of God is where? It is in the midst of you. So he's saying if people come and they say, hey, it's over there, it's over there, go look around for it. He said, no, 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 no. It's already here right now in the midst of you. What does he mean by that? Well, he's channeling the same spirit as he was when he taught the woman at the well. Do you remember her? Samaritan woman at the well in broad daylight. If you think you're culturally subversive or you're on somehow cutting edge, Jesus was the most culturally subversive person where there was. He was with a, a declared enemy of his people, a Samaritan woman. It was a woman and he was a man. They were at a well. He asked her, spoke with her directly, asked her for water, and she was a harlot. So as a Jew and as a man, he was not supposed to have anything to do with her, and he walked up to her and asked for a drink of water. He got into her life, and by the way, she was redeemed and became a redeemer. But in that conversation, she, I think, was trying to look a little smart, and she said, all right, you seem very wise. So the Samaritans say you should worship God here, and the Jews say you should worship God here. Where do you say we should worship God? And what does he say? What does he say to her? He gives her a beautiful response. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here. Do you hear that? The now and the not yet. When the true worshipers will worship the Father, where? In spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Not on a mountain, not in a building, not before an idol. Listen to what Matthew Henry says. It's beautiful. He said, It is not for you to know the the times of this kingdom. These are secret things which belong not to you but the great intentions 
of this kingdom, the reasons the kingdom exists, the purposes of the kingdom that it is accomplishing now toward that end, these things are clearly revealed. Here it comes. The kingdom of God will not change men's outside condition, but their hearts and their lives. That is blessing. And that is the nature of a kingdom. And that's why somebody like Jesus or Paul or all these persecuted people can be truly, truly blessed. So then he goes on into this apocalyptic passage. And he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky for one, from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man in this day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. What is one of these days of the Son of Man? Let me tell you what it is. It's really actually very beautiful. Elsewhere in Scripture, many times, Jesus relates this day, this day of the Son of Man to a wedding feast right before when the groomsmen are with the groom. If you've been in a wedding as a man or as a woman, as a bridesmaid, a groomsman with his groom, and what is that like those few days before? Let me tell you what I hope it's like. I hope it's this joyous, sacred moment when you are together and all of you are being your best selves because you're before this man who's preparing himself for his bride to make a sacred covenant and he is going to inside and out adorn himself for his bride. And it's a great day. And if you had problems, you've set them aside for now. If you've had struggles, you set them aside. And you spend a moment in the beauty and the prosperity of that sacred hour. That's how Jesus describes a day of the Son of Man. And he says, you will long for these days. He says, right now you're sort of in one because the bridegroom is with you. But the day will come when you will long for a day like this and it will not be here. A day of the Son of Man is a day of the prosperity and progress of the gospel. And the other thing that he says in this passage is he says, it will be obvious when I come back. It won't be a mystery. It says like lightning flashing before the sky. Have you ever been sitting outside, or especially if you're on the ocean or in the mountains, and the whole sky lights up? I was at Disney World one time with my family when I was a kid, and we were sitting watching right in front of the castle watching the fireworks show, which is spectacular. I think it was even some special occasion. It was like 4th of July or something. So it was extra, extra amazing. And everybody was like, oh, hey, ho, ho. But about five miles behind it was a giant thundercloud. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the fireworks show, as the fireworks went off, it went from side to side, from, from, from horizon to horizon. It lit up the sky and thundered and the ground shook. And everybody quit going, oh, hey. And they went, oh. Jesus says, hey, listen, that's what my coming will be. It will not be a mystery and it will not be confusing. You'll know when I come back. But first... I must suffer many things. You see in the story that death and destruction requires the deliverer to enter into its pain. 
It's part of the story. He says, in that time, just as in the days of Noah, verse 26, just as in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. In the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be in the day when the Son of, the, when the Son of Man is revealed. And what was Jesus saying there? He was saying that those who are not vigilant will lose their eyes and ears for God's design of things. They should see the signs, but they won't. They'll be living business as usual. What should be obvious to them will seem extraordinary and cataclysmic, and here's why. And I want you to hear this with your modern ears, because they'll either be distracted by prosperity or disheartened by suffering. That's what happened in Noah's time, and that's what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. They were distracted by prosperity, or they were disheartened by suffering, and they had lost their sense of things. They had lost their eyes and ears for God's divine reality and things that were broken and sick and and brutal and violent and lustful and self-absorbing had become ordinary. In a parallel passage to this, which is a great passage to read if you want to get more, more color and clarity on this passage, it's Matthew 24. Jesus says this, he says, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Think about those as markers of death and destruction, betrayal and hatred of one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Did you hear that? Lawlessness goes up, love diminishes. Because why? Because lawlessness is veiled freedom. Hear that today. Lawlessness, I'm sorry, freedom, uh, uh, lawlessness is, it's pretending to be freedom. It's false freedom. Lawlessness is the pursuit of my way, the way I want it, no matter what it costs anyone else. That's lawlessness, isn't it? When I break the law, it's a law that's meant to provide justice for everybody, to provide equity and flourishing for everybody. And when I break the law, I'm saying to everybody else, forget you, it's about me. Love can't exist in that environment, can it? So here's what happened. As lawlessness increases, a phony freedom, then we develop an inability to love. And on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not come back Remember Lot's wife. Remember she looked back? She looked back at her old life. She wanted to keep it. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, and one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. Now let me tell you what that's not speaking about. It's not talking about people being taken away like in left behind. It's not talking about a rapture. It's talking about judgment. Again, in apocalyptic literature, they would have understood what was going on here. 
This described a time of cataclysmic destruction. And here's the deal. Jesus was speaking of a specific and eminent event. And I'll tell you what that event was. Jesus was talking to these people about the fall of Jerusalem, which would happen in 40 years and in most of their lifetimes. In that generation, they would see something unimaginable happen that they could never, they could never envision. Let me read a description of what happened 40 years later, written by uh, Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian. The Romans, though it was a terrible struggle to collect the timber, raised their platforms in 21 days. Platforms were, you know, they'd build them for catapults and use them for different elements of war. They built their platforms in 21 days, having, as described before, stripped the whole area in a circle around the town to a distance of 10 miles. I want you to imagine for a moment that you lived in downtown Fort Lauderdale and in the distance you began to see smoke rising up days in advance and the smoke got so great it blotted out the sun. And as it got closer and closer, you began to hear the machinery of war as they began stripping the earth and taking away all of the foliage and all the trees and everything they were going to use to burn this city. And they moved closer and closer and there was nothing stopping them. And then they got so close that you could begin to hear the wails and screams of men, women, and children that they were slaughtering in their path as they came to destroy this city. Except imagine if that were Washington, D.C., unimaginable and unspeakable. The countryside like the city was a pitiful sight. For where once there had been a lovely vista of woods and parks, there was now nothing but desert and stumps of trees. No one, not even a foreigner, who had seen the old Judea and the glorious suburbs of the city and now set their eyes on her present desolation could have helped sighing and groaning at so terrible a change. For every trace of beauty had been blotted out by war and nobody who had known it in the past and came upon it suddenly would have recognized the place. When he was already there, he would have still been looking for the city. That's the battle of which Jesus spoke. And if you read on in Roman history, if you read other Roman historians, you will read stories of people being taken, of people fleeing from their housetops, leaving all their possessions inside, one being taken and one remaining. That's an apocalyptic story, and it can play out in an individual's life. You've known somebody who was destroyed such that they weren't even recognizable. Jesus wasn't speaking of a rapture. He was speaking of the judgment for lawlessness and the inability to love that had befallen that city. And then finally, in verse 37, he says, And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will be. Well, what he's speaking of there is judgment. The corpse is the person who has chosen willful indifference to the Lord. The person who has lost the ability to love, who has embraced lawlessness, and the vulture is the judgment that necessarily and naturally comes in this story of redemption. And by the way, Jesus is not happy when he's saying these words. He's not rejoicing in righteous indignation He says them with tears.
So that's what Jesus does. He describes an event, a pattern, and a culmination. Peace, freedom, rebellion, fall, slavery, and destruction. Faithful remnant, a deliverer. But where is the hope? Where is the hope? Because you cannot stop here in the redemptive story. In Matthew 24, again, he says this. But the one who endures will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. What is this mark of endurance? It's faith in the Savior King. It's faith in the one who stood before the Pharisees as he told these stories, who would suffer much and conquer sin and death. That is the endurance that he speaks of. So, I want to ask you this question. What is normal for you? If you imagine yourself living somewhere in this story, it's very important that your definition of normal is very clear and very rooted in God's definition of normal. You, you know how normal goes, right? You ever, uh, you live in your house, you, you know, you get used to everything, and then um, you think your house is great and it's clean and everything else, and then you invite someone over, Right? And then uh, it's getting closer to the time they're coming over and you start thinking about your house and then you start noticing things, you know, like the, the, the fur ball in the corner and then the cat that made it and then the litter box that's not cleaned and then you start remembering things like only the cold, only the hot water faucet works in the bathroom and, and all these little idiosyncrasies about your house and you start thinking about these other people's house maybe and you realize, wow, their normal is not the same as my normal. I better start rethinking my normal and making some adjustments, Right. Or, or you loan somebody your car. You ever do that? You loan somebody your car and you forget to tell them that you have to hold down the gas pedal halfway while you turn the key and count to 10. And, you know, you forget all that, right? Because normal has befallen you, right? The thing that, that was odd became normal to you. It just became your normal way of life. Well, those are all silly examples of what I'm talking about and what these people uh, had befallen these people and can befall us in this, in this, in this redemptive story. But let's talk about something more serious. Have you ever known someone who was an addict? Who took a thing and redefined normal around that thing. And they devoted all their resources, all of their energy, all of their creativity, everything they had, all of their money to that thing. And if you would not help them get that thing, then they would dump you. They would lie to you if that would help. They would beg, borrow, cheat, and steal to keep that thing. Because why? Because that's the very nature of addiction. It's when you create a new and treacherous normal for yourself. And so the cautionary tale for us of this passage is that we need to beware the ominous signs of this age. And that is very simply this. We need to, to be vigilant for the lawlessness and, 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 and uh, for lawlessness and an inability to love. And here's what I just want to say: When you walk out this door, I want you to keep your eye out for something. Selfish brutality. It's everywhere. 
It can be seen in, in, in silly little things like people laying on the horn as soon as the light turns green. Or uh, when I was at Target the other day and there was, I was waiting for the girls to come out for about 10, 15 minutes and there were uh, handicapped spots and they were all full. And I watched as people came out one after the other, nothing handicapped about them as they got in their cars and drove away. It's those little silly things that, that, that are just little bitty tiny reflections of much bigger things that look like this. What's in it for me culture that when faced with a moral decision calls their lawyer before they call their pastor or a wise friend to find out whether what they're doing is right. But instead, is it something that they can get away with? In contrast to that, is that AME Church's response up in, uh, it was in North Carolina, South Carolina? South Carolina. I don't know if you followed that at all, but that church itself, whereas a lot of other people have flooded in there with their own agendas, that church immediately responded to that with forgiveness for the assailant. And they praised their God for his faithfulness the next Sunday. Now, how were they able to do that? Because they knew their place in the redemptive story, because they had practiced it and remembered it and been vigilant about it. So when they found themselves in the midst of death and destruction, they knew that their role in the story was to be redeemers. And so you have racial reconciliation. You have beautiful things happening, growing out of that, in as much as that church will be allowed to control the message, it'll transform culture, because it did not replace love with lawlessness. So beware the brutality of this age, and I'll speak specifically to things like social media, which can be so brutal, it can suck you in to, to such brutal and vicious and, and, and thoughtless conversations and self-righteousness and filth. Don't be sucked into it. Stay away from those conversations. Let them die where they are. Don't let it corrupt you and make it normal for you to be a part of a selfish, brutal culture. But now for the good news, and we'll end with this. What's the real normal? The real ancient eternal normal that you must by faith remember. Three things. And I want you to hear these because they're going to sound churchy, but you need to hear them and you need to take them in, okay? The first one, you were made in the image of God. You were made in the image of the very God of the universe, which means that imprinted in you, even under the junk that's in you, even if someone sitting next to you is furiously angry with you right now for good reason, or you're angry at somebody else, every single one of you in this room, underneath your junk, no matter what it is, has in you goodness and justice and knowledge and love and courage and strength. Every person made in the image of God. Second thing, you were made beautiful. David says, fearfully and wonderfully you were made. Men, I want you to remember, you were made beautiful. And I want you to resist the cultural narrative that you are hopeless, eternally adolescent juveniles who are fools that must be compensated for. That is a sickening message for someone who is made in the image of God. You are men. 
You are men created after the image of God, created in the likeness of Christ, and that means that you are prophets. You speak for God to us. You are priests. You speak for us before the Lord. You are providers. You make sure that the people in your life have what they need to pursue their own redemptive story, and you are protectors. You stand between anything and people, between the people you love and anything that will bring them harm. That's who you are, men. Women, you are beautiful. And you must resist the cultural normal that says to you that the only way to manifest your beauty is to hypersexualize yourselves. That the only power you have resides in your ability to be attractive physically. And I don't want you to sit in here in your mind and think about which skirts, how high or low they are, all that kind of stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about embracing the essence of your eternal beauty. As your body gets old and decays like anybody else's will, the eternal beauty in you will always remain. And even in the end times, your beautiful physical body will be restored. Reside in that beauty, make that normal, and do not let this world suck you in and tell you that you are a sex object and that therein lies your power and your worth and your significance. Don't do it. Because you know that's what the world would have you do. Finally, you were made for a purpose, and that purpose was to redeem things. Originally, you were created, Adam and Eve, right? To do what? To cultivate, to create, to be fruitful and multiply. That didn't just mean have kids. That means to take God's creation and build on it. Well, what happens in a broken world? It means that you become redeemers with Christ. You are redeemed redeemers. That's why you're here. Everything you have is for the purpose of redeeming people through you. And that's how you raise your kids. You're raising redeemers. You want to know what your kid's goal is in life? You want to know what their purpose is? It's redemption. It's to become redemptive agents in this world. And if you run all over the planet, get into violin lessons and soccer practice and, and, and the best schools and everything you can do, that, that may all be good as long as you understand it should all be cultivating a little redeemer. And not being an obstacle. So that's why you were made to be a redeemer because you've been redeemed and to raise redeemers. Let me end with this. From that same Jewish historian, uh, um, Josephus, writing about another man, he said, about this time there lived a man, uh, there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. And when upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life, for the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day, not disappeared. He wrote that in the first century, and it's true of you. 
So Jesus says this, therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come and in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or, when, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray. Lord, I lift up this body of people along with myself. And I pray for just that. I pray that you would wake us from our slumber anywhere in our lives where we have lost sight of our place in the redemptive story. Lord, I pray that you would take our prosperity and turn it to blessing by blessing others with it. I pray, Lord, that you would take our suffering and turn it to blessing by bringing us alongside others who suffer like us and showing us our ministry in their lives through our suffering. I pray, Father, that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on that true glorious day when Jesus will come and the lightning will flash from east to west and every head will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.